Are you looking for truth from God's word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons, Bible teacher and president of Clarity Christian College, formerly known as Florida Bible College. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. I want to welcome all of you to our first message in a series on the study of 1 Peter. And I hope that you'll be able to be with us each week because there's a theme that runs throughout the entire book. And I believe that God has a message in each one of these sermons that's connected to his greater theme. And this way you can have all the ingredients to the cake that God wants you to enjoy. While we will be talking about discouragement, it's not my desire to make you feel more discouraged. It's my desire to bring you the Lord who is the great mood lifter during your times of discouragement. Any of us living here in Hawaii over the last few years, we have a lot of earthly things we can look at that might cause some discouragement. Whether it's our own version of the recession or maybe the downturn in the economy causing our own offices, state offices to close and some of our educational facilities to close on Fridays for furlough Fridays. Some of you might have been downside, not given a raise or a bonus. Perhaps some of you are struggling with that. And then you see what happened in Japan with the tsunami there and the aftermath of it here and then the nuclear reactor problem there and what it might mean for us here. We can become very discouraged just by opening up the newspaper. And I know that. And some of you, you might be looking at your life right now and you could say, I'm pretty discouraged too. I've got a poor report from my doctor. My own finances are not doing very well. My kids aren't acting the way they should be. Relationships are crumbling around me. I do not know what the future holds, but I'm becoming more and more discouraged. And that might be the very case with you. In fact, I believe that the disease of discouragement is universal and everybody has it from time to time and often different degrees. In fact, we can be around discouraging people and it won't be very long before we'll be discouraged. And at times, I hate to say this, but I'm sure I have been down and I've been around people that were pretty upbeat and maybe by the time they left me, unfortunately, they were down a little bit. But although we live in this world of discouragement, I can promise you that there is a cure for that discouragement. There is a way to look at the Bible and what God wants us to look at a Christian worldview during times that are often described as discouraging and to become uplifted. That's why, because of the entire five chapters, I've titled this series a title called Thriving During Difficult Times. And so I don't know where you are in your difficult times, but I hope that you would thrive. Maybe it would help you to understand a little bit more about the background of this book and what was happening so you can see how important that it is. First of all, the writer of it was Peter, although he was inspired by God to write this at a certain time in history. And God could have had this material given to any other writer, but he chose Peter, probably because Peter, he had some discouraging times in his own life by choices that he made, even when he made right choices and then he got thinking differently about it and down he went. So you could look at his life as one being one of discouragement. But then you have to look at the people to whom this was written. So God took a man who knew a lot about discouragement, probably through the writing of that, even encouraged Peter more for God knew what Peter was going to face in the future but to also write it to a group of people that probably were going through discouraging times. Let me describe to you a little bit about what they probably were going through. First of all, it was a dispersed group of Jews who were believers in Christ. Now, they could have been dispersed because of persecution from their own family or just be able to try to survive financially, you know, to to live on planet Earth 2,000 years ago. But in any case, they were struggling with their new faith. They believed it. They got excited about it. Soon as they began to tell others about it, there was a major pushback to the point of being marginalized with that they were scattered. 
And so you can imagine how discouraged they would be. So they were discouraged because of their faith, but that faith brought a lot of aftermath. They had to move around. Think about packing up your family and moving from place to place, trying to eke out a living just to survive, let alone to put some investments together so you can retire when you're 70, things like that. So he was writing to that. And that group of people were not only Jews that were saved, but there's a small group of Gentiles, we believe, that he was speaking to as well. This wasn't just written to one church. This letter was to be written and then received by Christians all over. So this message, although it was for people, then it's for people today. Now, let me say this, if you don't mind. I, I struggle with a little, little inner tension as I was preparing for this message. I just built a case for people that had a pushback because of their faith. At the same time, I was trying to make a case that because of that, they were struggling with some of the issues of life. And the reason I did that is because I feel your pain and I live in life too. And we all struggle with this. But if I really want to be true to the scripture here, it wasn't talking to people who had to deal with a family member who had cancer. It wasn't specifically written to a group of people because there was struggling with maybe some finances or a loss of a job or maybe one of their donkeys were dying or something. But it was written to a group of people who, because of their faith in Jesus Christ, chose to live a radically different lifestyle from the inside out. And they knew that once they chose to walk with God, their whole world would change. And they were discovering for the first time what real persecution was all about. So now I speak to you from those two angles to begin with. Maybe some of you are a new believer, or maybe you've been a believer for a while, but you've decided now to really live for God. I hate to tell you this because I don't want to discourage you, but I promise you that there will be discouraging times. I was so elated when I trusted Christ about 11 o'clock at night, only to have my joy dashed when I would tell my own dad at 1 o'clock in the morning. And then I would go to school so excited that I know I'm going to heaven and others could too, and have my friends push back against me and mock me so much. And then I remember my whole life began to crumble. So I began to even question my faith that what I believe, is it really true or not? So I could look at that. And so some of you might be there. I don't know. Now there could be a, a group of you in here that are saying, I'm, I, I'm not so discouraged. I'm, I, everything is okay so far. I mean, you know, little problems of life, you know, things happen once in a while, you know, but I'm doing pretty good right now. Let me go back to when this was written. This was written again by Peter under the inspiration of God, which means God wanted him to write it to these people at this time in this location. Where was he writing this book from? He was writing it from Rome. Now, Rome was just a big, important city in the world in those days, but something very soon was going to happen. And that's what's so important. Because Peter was there, and I'm sure he had his hands on the pulse of the political arena, as well as the spiritual arena as its declension there, especially its beginning attack on those who would be called Christ followers or Christians or followers of the way. So he's starting to see those storm clouds coming on the horizon. And I can only imagine that God took Peter in inspiring him to write this material because God knew ahead of time there was going to be a horrific persecution of Christians at that time. But the Christians didn't think that. They were going through some tough times, but nothing like what would follow. It wasn't long before in 64 AD that there was a great emperor, at least in the world's eyes, by the name of Nero. He hated Christians so much that he lit his garden by taking Christians and impaling them upon a huge pole and lighting them. And with the flaming bodies of blood-bought, born-again believers, he lit his garden. And then a massive amount of persecution went on. But that all occurred after this book was written 
and after it was then sent out to the people that were there. Now, why am I building that case? For some of us that say, yeah, I have some problems in life, but it's not too bad. It's quite possible that you are going to be facing some tremendous issues that could bring about a crumbling of your mood to a level of discouragement. Now, I'm not going to be a prophet of doom, but I think all of us know that our country is not the same today as it was 10 years ago or 50 years ago. We also know enough scripture that says in the last days, it seems like there'll even be more and more sin, evident and freewheeling. I don't know this, how bad it will get, but I know it can come. But let's not just talk about what we see in the political horizon and how the Christians are being marginalized, whether you are a vocal, visible Christian or one who just chooses to live a life with honesty and decency and integrity, maybe a, a Christian worldview, not knowing so much that it's found in the Bible, but it's just the right thing to do. But the worldview is so different with relative, re relativity out there going on. And now you're going to struggle with that. I, I don't know. But I know that God led Peter to write this book, place these truths in his heart, came out in a writing, preserved for 2,000 years, and I'm speaking today in 2011, to people that, for whatever reason, God brought you here to hear this. I don't know what your future will be. I don't know if it'll be because you have decided now to live so much for God that your career could be in jeopardy, that your family relationships could be challenged, or even your economics could come to a point that your lifestyle drastically changes. And I don't even know if maybe you might even lose your health or life for actually speaking Christ. I don't know that. I don't know that maybe that God for you is going to allow some things to happen into your life that you didn't plan. But God wants you to have this book in your heart. I remember this last week on Wednesday. The people who woke up in the mainland in Alabama, Tennessee, Georgia, Virginia, they had no idea that a horrible tornado would go for so many hundreds of miles on the ground and wipe out so many people's houses and businesses. And over 350 people died and they're still looking for bodies. They did not know that when they woke up. But it's to those people, to you people, to those that are struggling because you're now taking a stand for your faith. I want to bring you hope. I want to bring you some ways to think that are biblical that will carry you through it. What I cannot bring to you is this. I cannot bring to you how that your money is going to get better and you'll get richer. I cannot bring to you a promise that you won't have cancer. Or if you have it, you'll get over it. I cannot promise you that when you start speaking the name of Christ, everybody's going to fall down around you and love you and hug you. I can't promise you that. I cannot promise you that you will not be affected by the next earthquake or tsunami that could wash upon our shore. I cannot promise you that that won't happen. But what I can promise you is the hope that's found in Christ. I can promise you a way to think that could create a heartfelt attitude that then will produce a behavior that will help you to go through this in such a way that others could look to you and want to go to the source that made you that way. And that would be Jesus Christ. So it's my heart's desire that this message would affect all of us. And folks, you can only imagine that if God wants me to share this with you, and he does, that he wants me to go on a journey of the same issues of life that many of you will go on and I don't know what it is either. And I only pray and I say this very tenderly, a little fearfully, that I will be strong enough to be enough of a model to you that these truths work. But I, I want you to know this has impacted my life more than I can ever tell you. And I don't know what holds the future but I know who holds it. 
So that being the case, let's go now into our study of 1 Peter chapter 1, and we'll just cover a few points today, and every week we'll build on it. Next week is Mother's Day, so I have a special message for mothers, but we're going to go through this book, and I hope it's an encouragement for you as it is for me. Now, I'm going to leave you with three basic truths today. Again, I'm a little bit nervous about this because I'm speaking not to a group of brand new believers. This audience here is filled with a lot of Christians that are older, seminary people even. But here's what I'd like to say to you that are older in the faith. These three truths are going to be your anchors. They're going to be your north star. They're going to be everything you need when the world crumbles down and all those little spiritual platitudes that you've heard over the years. If you need to hang on to only three truths, what would be the three truths it doesn't mean the other truths aren't important. But if you had to go back to the very foundation, you need to own these. Now, you that are new Christians, I can give you four points in a poem. I can have all the songs. I could parade a lot of testimonies in front of you. But you need to get these three truths so much a part of your being because it's upon these three truths that we're going to build to the future. Now, why am I so exercised about this? Well, for one reason, God put through Peter these three truths at the beginning of 1 Peter, not at the end of 1 Peter. So that must mean, again, it's truth upon truth upon truth upon truth. So what are these three truths? So let me see if I can put it in plain English and then go back to the Bible and show you how to make sense of it. So let's go to number one. God has chosen me to be a part of his forever family. Now you can write that in your notes, but you need to write that on your mind. You got to write it in your heart that God has chosen me to be a part of his forever family. Would you allow me to read verses 1 through 3 to you? Here's how it goes. This letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and I'm writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the lands of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, province of Asia, and Bithynia. God the Father chose you long ago, and the Spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed Jesus Christ and are cleansed by his blood. May you have more and more of God's special favor and wonderful peace. All honor to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for it is by His boundless mercy that God has given us the privilege of being born again. Now we live with a wonderful expectation because Jesus Christ, I love it, rose again from the dead. Well, let's go back to truth number one. God has chosen me to be a part of His forever family. I look at that word chose there. That's a, a neat word, doesn't it? What does that really mean to us? That means that in God's mind before the foundation of the world that God said you will be a part of his forever family and you were chosen by him. I really like that. It's an important word. Another translation says you were chosen according to the purpose of God, which ramps it up a little bit. You're not only chosen by God, but God has a purpose for you. Now, when I think about the word chosen, I think about another word in the Bible called adopted. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the biblical adoption, but for those of you that know anything about adoption, this might help you. Those of you who are new, Carol and I adopted two boys, seven and, and ten years old. Now, these boys, I think the Lord allowed us maybe even to have this as a part of the journey of learning as an illustration for you. These two boys were in an orphanage, you might say, in the old days. Now they would just say in a home, Children's Home Society of Florida. Both of these boys had a mother who was a barmaid, different fathers, drank a tremendous amount, so the boys were affected with fetal alcohol syndrome. We knew they had some emotional problems. It tracked because these boys were um, given up by their mother, taken by the state, worked with, and then given to foster families. 
in the foster family. They lived together, but they were so bad, could not function together. They were split up and put into separate foster families. They could not function there, so they put into the group home. They found an adopted set of parents, so the parents took these boys in. They had them less than a year. They couldn't take the boys, so they threw the boys away again, gave them back to the home. The boys were now in the home. Their files were stamped unadoptable. Along comes Stan and Carol. Now, we kind of knew a little bit about going into this, but nothing until you actually live with these boys. I'm building a case for Chosen. So as we then looked at these boys, they looked at us, stable marriages, stable families, counseling background, could help them. Maybe they have a pastoral heart that will work with their struggles, blah, blah, blah. So we then took them in. We chose them. We did not have to take them. In fact, they said we should probably only take the youngest and not the oldest. And we, with our hearts, could not separate two half-brothers, especially when they had no one else. So we took them both in. We chose them. Now, they had problems for sure, but sometimes there was a sunshine day in their thinking in their life, and it happened a couple of times. When we were going through this process at college, I remember that um, I was teaching at the college. We didn't tell anybody because we didn't know if we'd qualify and what we were going to do and all of that. Well, now we get the boys, we pick them up from the home, we bring them into our our, our car, we take them to the the college. The college had towers, these where we would live in, the married couples and the faculty. We'd park down below, we'd get into the elevator at the bottom. We lived on the fourth floor. So as we get into this elevator, here's two boys with their bags, Carol and me. It goes from the basement to the next floor. We pick up some students. Next floor, pick up some more. We get to the sixth floor, and now we're to the fourth floor. Just before we got to the fourth floor, our high eye, uh, Mr. Outgoing Joey, looks at everybody and says, Hi, everybody, these are my parents. Now, you have to understand, Stan and Carol were childless for over a decade, never thought we'd have kids. We, people knew we couldn't have kids, and all of a sudden, these are our parents. Well, that was the big shock. Less than a week later, Curtis Hudson comes on. He was the um, editor of Sword of the Lord. He then shows up, and he does a week of meetings there. Curtis came up to me, and he said, hey, I met somebody in your family. I said, oh, really? Where? And I was thinking somewhere around the country. And he says, no, there was a little boy named Joey over here. And this little Joey came up to me and says, mister, I don't know who you are, but that's my dad. All right. Now I'm saying that for a reason. I am nobody special. But those boys at that moment in their life, when that sun was shining for that maybe one day, they could sense they were picked. They were chosen. There was a sense of, I have a place, a sense of place we'd say here in Hawaii. They were part of that. And I can only imagine, because I'm nowhere like God, if those little boys could feel a little bit of sense, I belong somewhere. With all the struggles I've had, all the times I was rejected, these people that are basically perfect strangers would take me in, not hardly even knowing us, felt so important. How can we not as a Christian, who some have great knowledge of God, be satisfied with know that no matter what happens, all hell breaks loose here in this earth. It does not matter because God chose me to be in his forever family. How can we not have that sense of, of mood lift to know it doesn't matter. I've got God. And those of you who are new, maybe we have to have a childlike faith and say, I know that I know that I trusted Christ as my Savior and I know that there is a God and I don't have a doubt that he's the only God, but I don't know a lot about God, but that's okay. He chose me. Now, some of you might be struggling with this because you're already thinking, oh, is he a Calvinist? Is he Armenian? Where is he going with all this stuff here? Well, let me speak to that for just a moment. First of all, there are plenty of verses that will talk about us being chosen, selected, predestined before the foundation of the world and the foreknowledge of God. I could build a big case, and they have been doing this since probably maybe even the Reformation when it became really popular in the Puritan days, etc. I can make a case for that. 
At the same time, we can equally make a case that the Bible says that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And nearly the last verse in the Bible says, whosoever comes and drinks of the water of life will never thirst again. I had to teach the book of Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, and I had to do a deep study on the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. I read both sides of the issue. I went through the Greek. I talked to my people. I went back to the great sages, missionaries. Why would I go back to missionaries? Because I wanted to find out what was their mindset. And it was interesting to find that all the early missionaries, not saying every missionary, but all the early missionaries, they had a tremendous view in the sovereignty of God that God knew those would be, who would be His. And yet they had this strong belief that it was God's responsibility to decide who He chooses and who He doesn't, but God said that we are to give the gospel to everybody because it's whosoever believes can have eternal life. And that's what sent them and that's what kept them on the mission field. It was a whole lot worse than many of our mission fields are today. And so as I came to this conclusion, it's not going to help you very much, but it does enough for me right now. The illustration has been used by many people. One of them uses a railroad track illustration. As you, we don't have railroads here on the, on the island. We did with the uh, Cane Days, Eva Beach, you can see them there. But if you have a railroad track, you've got two rails. On one rail, you could say man's free will. It's the choice that man has that he can choose to trust Jesus Christ as his Savior. Now, that's not apart from God convicting him of sin, bringing in the message of salvation by faith alone, making sure he knew what he had to do in order to place his faith in Christ, but it was his choice to trust Christ. God had to work that up in him. Then you have the other rail, which is the sovereignty of God, that we were chosen before the foundation of the world by his foreknowledge, and so we have eternal life because of his choice. Now, it's interesting because through life, that train, if it only ran on one track, the track of the free will of man, that train would be pitched into a ditch of, well, I can choose to trust Christ, but that also means that so free will, I can choose not to trust Christ, and then I could lose my salvation. And there are equally many verses that will say that you cannot lose your salvation, and should I have time, I'll give you some so you can take home and study that. So it would pitch us into that ditch of saying that I can believe to get in, I can believe to get out, because it's all free will. If I ride the train on only one rail over here of the sovereignty of God, then it could pitch me into the ditch of fatalism. Well, since it's all of God, it doesn't matter how I live. It doesn't matter if I give the gospel to anybody. It doesn't matter. If God wants him, he'll get the message to him. Of course, we don't know who, but it's all fatalism. And so what God has done is he's chosen for us in this mind to understand that there is the free will of man that he can choose to get in, but he can't choose to get out. You have the sovereignty of God. In God's sovereignty, he made the way of salvation. We've been in him before the foundation of the world and there's nobody in hell who's not supposed to be there. But they have these two rails and they do mentally for us where we are conflict. Now, if you park in one camp so long, it will eventually move toward a fatalistic thought. If you stay in the other rail too long, it will lead you to believe you probably will lose your salvation if at the very end you don't keep believing. If you, for whatever reason, decide to turn your back and look... And so now you have that problem. So what he's decided to do to keep us understanding this truth of God is that you have the two rails. Now you say, but they don't agree. You're right. And I love the way the illustration that was given to me ends. It says those rails will meet, not in my mind this side of heaven, but those rails will meet and make sense in eternity. So my position is to hold what it has to say on both rails and to believe both of them together that God has chosen me but I do have that free will to be able to choose but not choose to get out 
And I think about this. When God chose me, he didn't just choose me to say, hey, you got fire insurance. That's it. I'm so glad it wasn't that. I'm so glad he didn't say, hey, I chose you. You trusted in me. And guess what? I am now your father. Now that is huge to me. I'm glad that I don't just have fire insurance. I'm glad that I'm a part of his forever family. Would you take your notes and circle the word forever? That's forever and ever and ever. That means God is my father. And he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Do I hear an amen on that? What do you think the result is if he is king that I'm a king's kid? I'm a part of his forever family. What a joy that is to know. Now, as I look at this passage, if you want to look at it, it's because of his boundless mercy. Would you circle that boundless mercy that he let me to be in his forever family? What a joy that is to have that I could be a part of that royalty. I don't know about you, but if you've been following the marriage of, of William and Kate, Good, I'm glad you haven't. But you know all the pomp and circumstance that goes with that, and I can only imagine what God has waiting for us. What joy that there really is. Notice the last part of the verse. It says here that uh, we have the privilege of being born again. This is Joe Pons, and I want to thank you for listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries and president of Clarity Christian College. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It's the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org. That's makeitclear.org. Thank you for helping us make it clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please email us at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. That's tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear.